This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. Today, our author is award-winning investigative journalist Ben Westhoff. We spoke with him as he was on tour in September of 2019 with his then-brand-new book, Fentanyl, Inc., How Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the Opioid Epidemic by publisher Grove Atlantic. Philosophy major turned culture writer turned investigative journalist, Ben Westhoff wound up diving into the world of the opioid epidemic by covering the popular electronic dance music scene. The use of illegal substances had always been part of that world, but all of a sudden, people started dying after taking popular party drugs at a rate never seen before. After digging a little bit, he found out that fentanyl was being mixed into what were considered safer mass-produced legal meds. Now, when I was a kid, drugs were certainly dangerous, but now fentanyl is cut into cocaine, meth, and pre prescription pills even. And so when you think about these fake pills, they nowadays they can be cut with fentanyl and stamped using a machine, a pill press machine, so it has the actual logo of like Oxycontin or Percocet. And so that's how people are dying. They think they're taking legitimate pills. And following that thread of information, he found himself tracking down the source of the additives to China, tracing the spread of the synthetic drug throughout the world, and testifying in the halls of Congress about the manufacture, use, abuse, and effect of fentanyl in the United States. We'll learn about investigative journalist Ben Westhoff's deep journey through the illicit drug world and hear some stories about the lives of the businesses and people affected by it on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host and interviewer this time, Brenda Madden. Ben Westhoff, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the book just came out like 24 hours ago, uh, Fentanyl Inc., and it's really the ink that captures the essence of the story you're trying to tell here. Yeah, it's about how fentanyl went from the pharmaceutical realm, where it was and continues to be an important hospital drug, into the illicit realm, where it's now sold on the streets in places like St. Louis as drugs. For a lot of Americans, fentanyl is a word they've heard but have never really fixed on to figure out exactly what it is and what it does and why it is such a huge, a huge threat now. So just tell us, what is fentanyl essentially? You can think of it as a synthetic heroin. And so it's the third wave of the opioid crisis. So the first wave was prescription pills like OxyContin. And so when people were prescribed these pills, a lot of people, when their prescriptions ran out, found themselves addicted. And so they would turn to street heroin, and that represented the second wave of the opioid crisis. Now it's almost impossible to find pure heroin, especially in places like St. Louis, because almost all of it is cut with fentanyl. And so fentanyl is the third and the most deadly wave of the opioid epidemic because it's so much more powerful than heroin. It's 50 times stronger. You lay out the background on all of this in the early chapters and explain why something that, as you said, ha had a 
legitimate and still has a legitimate medical use, became this like really easy, convenient, profitable way uh, to fuel the drug trade. Fentanyl was invented in the early 60s by a Belgian chemist, and he was manipulating the chemical structure of morphine, trying to find something that worked even better than morphine. And fentanyl was that, and it worked, was used for open-heart surgery. Nowadays, it's used for epidurals and women giving birth, colonoscopies, things like that. But somewhere along the way, these rogue chemists started using it for their own purposes. Now, at first, people started mysteriously dying of a new drug. This was in Orange County, California at the very early 80s. And the authorities found heroin paraphernalia. They found track marks on their arms. But their blood sample didn't show this to be heroin. So they were stumped. It turns out it was this new type of fentanyl and even though fentanyl was banned, the chemists had tweaked the formula just slightly. So now they'd created this new drug that was totally legal. One of the things you, you explain in detail is that it's just the perfect substance for that. It can morph and be changed quickly to evade whatever's been outlawed. Uh, it can, it, it's like a, a cancer cell almost, right? It can just yeah. do what it needs to do to survive. Yeah, exactly. So traditional drugs like cocaine, marijuana, heroin, these are all plants and they're grown in a field. But that takes a lot of energy and time and it's easy for the cops to, to find. High risk. Exactly. But with fentanyl, it's a synthetic drug. And so it can be made very quickly and cheaply in a lab. And what you're talking about are called analogs. An analog is what I was, was saying before, where you take the chemical structure of a known drug that's illegal, you tweak it just slightly, and now you have something that's just as potent, sometimes more potent, but it's also legal. There's a lot of science journalism in this book. It's essentially, really, science journalism, yet you found your way to it through your background in music journalism. Tell us how that happened. This isn't something you sort of noticed in a, in a in a medical journal and said, let me find out more. You came across this in a really uh, unusual way. Yeah, I was writing about the electronic dance music scene, which became really popular again a few years ago. And I was noticing that at raves, someone was dying almost every time, often more than one person. And the cause of death was always listed as ecstasy or sometimes molly which is supposed to be the same thing as ecstasy. But I'd never known pure ecstasy to be a dangerous drug. And so I found out that it turns out this wasn't ecstasy at all. It was adulterated with all of these new drugs coming from China. And so that sent me down a rabbit hole to find out what were these new drugs. And there are hundreds and hundreds of them, one of which is fentanyl, but they also have substitutions for ecstasy, for cocaine, meth, LSD, every drug you can think of. There was this whole underground world that hadn't sort of been caught yet. Exactly. What year was that when you feel like you first started to hear about this mysterious kind of killer drug? Around 2015, and fentanyl was just starting to take people's lives then. At the same time, however, there were these new drugs that are sometimes called synthetic marijuana, 
And they also have names like K2 and Spice. And so even though they're called synthetic marijuana, they really don't have much to do with weed as we know it traditionally. You know, with, when you're, if you smoke some weed, you might get the munchies, you might get a little mellow. But these drugs, this uh, synthetic marijuana, is totally the opposite. Your heart starts racing and people overdose on these drugs all the time. And so in St. Louis, not that long ago, you could actually buy the synthetic marijuana legally over the counter at um, head shops and different gas stations. And so this was another case of a drug, a new synthetic drug that was manufactured in China. And there were hundreds and continue to be hundreds of new ones, variations all the time. Your book was recently excerpted in, in The Atlantic. And, and one of the things that you show is a photo of the Chinese company uh, called Wan Chang. Am I saying that correct? Uh, Yuan Chang, yeah. Well, okay. Uh, which you're saying is basically responsible for the massive rise. Well, so the more I learned about this and realized it, realizing it was all happening in China, I thought, oh, man, I've got to go there. And I knew it would be a pretty risky endeavor. My wife was certainly not thrilled with the idea. But it was really easy to get in touch with these companies. They advertised right on the Internet. All I did was email some of them and said, I'm coming to China. I would like to see the lab. And they agreed to show me. So when I arrived, I was expecting these kind of underground facilities, maybe with armed guards at the door, a really seedy enterprise. But it wasn't like that at all. These were really sort of normal, professional-looking companies. From the outside, you would have had no idea. It just looked like an office park, one that I visited. But inside... I saw a lab that was was kind of like a Breaking Bad-style lab with the beakers and glassware and these different types of fentanyl being synthesized right before my eyes, these different types of synthetic marijuana. And at another facility that I went to, it was actually a giant sales floor. And there were hundreds and hundreds of young, recent college graduate salespeople and they were at their cubicles. It looked like a Western office. They had their little plants and their little like They could have tchotchkes. been selling insurance. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But they were selling the, the chemicals to make fentanyl, and they're called precursors. And this company, from, from my research, is selling more of these fentanyl precursors than any other company in the world. On your blog, you show a photo, and it's just on a normal street corner. It's nothing... It just looks so innocuous. Uh, and you mentioned that your interactions were like pleasant and uh, certainly not without risk, but almost cheerful in dealing with the sales staff. Uh, yeah, they are used to Western customers. And I talked actually extensively with a lot of the different salespeople. And I talked to them about how they got into this line of work. And it turns out it's a really well-paid job. It's a good job for a college graduate. They get health insurance, a free cell phone, free room and board. I actually visited where they live, and they live in, all together in this hotel. There's like a canteen with a company chef. So it's a, it's a really odd thing to behold. What is their awareness level of what they're doing and what fentanyl, what their products do? That's a good question. In China, there actually isn't a fentanyl problem. There isn't the same kind of opioid crisis. 
Um, and a lot of people believe that's why the Chinese government has not really cracked down on this industry the way the U.S. would like it to. Because it's not a social issue for them or a medical issue even, really. Right. right. And so a lot or of the salespeople, right. yeah, they don't have a crisis there with fentanyl. And so a lot of the salespeople claim to never have heard of it, to not know what they were selling. And I tended to believe them. Now, the people at the top of the pyramid, the CEO of the company, I talked to him as well. And he also tried to plead some ignorance, but that I was not buying. So you feel like the people on the ground are somewhat not that worried about it, I guess, or yeah, and they don't know, unaware. They don't know what the drugs are used for, and they haven't bothered trying to find out. So, so take me back to when you first started hearing about this, these mysterious deaths, and you began peeling away the layers. How did that process begin? You find out about the first death. When, at what point did you start to realize, like, what is this is a trend, and and what kind of what was your entry into the rabbit hole after you discovered something was going on? Well, the drug crisis that we heard about growing up, we heard about the crack epidemic and meth and then the opioid epidemic. And what was really different here, I could tell, was that nobody wants fentanyl. I mean, some people do, but for the most part, people are trying to use other drugs when they get fentanyl cut into them. And so drug dealers are looking to save money and... So you get a situation where people have maybe been a longtime heroin addict for decades and they tried this new drug, just one hit, cut with fentanyl, and they die. And so I began to realize that it was sort of poisoning all the whole drug supply. Now, when I was a kid, drugs were certainly dangerous, but now fentanyl is cut into cocaine, meth, and pre prescription pills even. And so when you think about these fake pills, they nowadays they can be cut with fentanyl and stamped using a machine, a pill press machine. So it has the actual logo of like Oxycontin or Percocet. And so that's how people are dying. They think they're taking legitimate pills. That's how the singer Prince died. And it was also just revealed that the rapper Mac Miller died the same way. He thought he was taking Oxycontin but it was fentanyl. The interesting thing too that I thought from a reader's perspective was, uh, whereas this is originating or the precursors are originating in these professional looking labs, once it leaves those labs, it goes into a realm of Mexican drug cartels, local dealers, and that's when the dosages go crazy. And as you said, where everything kind of blows up in terms of protocol. Yeah, exactly. So. The Mexican cartels don't have the skilled chemists to make fentanyl from scratch. And so they get the precursors, like I was talking about, the fentanyl ingredients from China. And they come over on these huge cargo ships, these container ships. And the cartels take, make the fentanyl the rest of the way, which is a fairly easy process. Then it's packaged up. It's often cut already. So it's cut with... Um, different uh, like laxatives and things like that. And then that mixture is cut into fentanyl. There's a lot of, you know, to maximize profit, it gets cut down a lot. The problem is once it comes across the border to the U.S. distributors, even those people don't know how strong this product is. They don't know how much fentanyl is in there. So it could be a tiny bit of fentanyl. It could be a huge amount. Once it gets to the streets, 
absolutely no one has any idea what it's going to be. And that's why so many people are dying. And this isn't a book about addiction, but you talk to addicts and spend time with them. Uh, what did they share with you about their experience with fentanyl and how they sort of saw it come into, into that sort of scene? It really started to hit St. Louis about five years ago. And there was certainly a large population of heroin users. And I visited the old Magic Chef factory and it's a half million square feet, this huge place that's abandoned. And all of these addicted users sort of go there to, to shoot up, to pass out, things like that. And I talked with someone, a former heroin addict and fentanyl dealer who spent a lot of time there. He basically lived there. And he told me that, you know, during the heroin era, it certainly wasn't safe by any means. But then when fentanyl came in about five years ago, suddenly people started dropping like flies. And that's when he himself kind of hit rock bottom too. And we talked to, I talked to a lot of addicted users who became dealers. And so what's interesting about that is because the, the legislation, these new laws seek to target dealers rather than users. So the idea is that the users will get care, rehabilitation, treatment, while they're gonna give the, the dealers the harshest sentences possible. The problem is a lot of dealers are just dealing to pay for their own habits. And so they're not really two different sets of people. It's not this sort of ominous drug kingpin in the neighborhood, right? It's, it's, it's often not that, like that, yeah. Okay. The odd thing, too, not the odd thing, but the really scary thing, really, was that as deadly as this was, it somehow made it more appealing, too. Not for every user, but some of the addicts that you talk to say sometimes an overdose death in increased the, the demand. Yeah, the demand. exactly. Yeah. There are, there are a lot of um, longtime heroin addicts, uh, addicted users, is the, the parlance people prefer, so I should use that, who don't aren't able to get high anymore so basically they suffer from withdrawal withdrawal symptoms and heroin can bring them back to feeling healthy again but with fentanyl that gets them to the point where they can actually feel high again and so when someone hears that someone overdosed instead of saying well i better stay away from that people say oh that must be the really strong the good stuff and they flock to it the appetite is there and so even if you can stop it coming from China or stop it coming from Mexico, which we can all agree, right, is monumental. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's that hunger for it. Yeah. And that's why I say that we really need to work on the demand side here at home. And so the opioid crisis, of course, started with the overprescription of all these ph pharmaceuticals, OxyContin. And a lot of these big companies really looked the other way. And Recently, a St. Louis company has come into the spotlight, which is called Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals. And some recently released documents show that we've heard a lot about Purdue Pharma, who made OxyContin, but it was actually Mallinckrodt Pharmaceuticals who made more pills than anyone else, something like 29 billion pills at the height of the opioid crisis. And a lot of these salespeople acted really callously. These emails were uncovered and someone was saying something like, you know, it's almost like people are addicted to these pills. And, and then the salesperson from Malacrat responded, well, it's like Doritos, just keep eating and we'll make more. Wow. 
just recently, too, uh, the first sort of successful lawsuit and court ruling occurred uh, against uh, a big pharmaceutical company in this. Um, is that sort of the, the next level of where you think this this story is going? Um, yeah, I compare it to the big tobacco settlements of the 90s. And there's kind of already starting to be, there's actually thousands of these individual lawsuits that are starting to get grouped together. And so companies like Johnson & Johnson, Purdue Pharma, you know, Mallinckrodt, they're, they're all certainly going to have to pay. But at the same time, they're, they've made so many billions and billions of dollars in profits. I have kind of mixed feelings because no matter what the settlement is, it's not going to any, be anywhere close enough to, to make up for all the death and to even pay for the programs that we need to, to stem the crisis. And the ruling that just happened, I believe, was that Johnson & Johnson? That's right? right, yeah. Was that a surprise to you? Um, I mean, is, is, that a, is that a real indication of a tide turning uh, two or three years ago? Do you think that that... Could oh, yeah, yeah. The tide the tide has definitely turned. Yeah, other companies agreed to settle. Johnson & Johnson fought in court. But the tide is definitely turning, and I don't think the public has much appetite. Just the way, you know, cigarette ads were tolerated for decades and decades, and then finally people said they had had enough. And it's the same thing here, I think. It's interesting because I have a friend who's a, a fire sergeant in the city, and I do remember around that time that you're talking about, 2015, of him saying, oh, my gosh, all we do these days is go on heroin overdose deaths. And I remember thinking at the time, like, wow, you know, you'd started to hear, yeah, heroin was coming back with a vengeance. But um, it's interesting to look back now and realize we had no idea that, that that's what it was. Yeah, public services are being used in all sorts of ways no one expected, including libraries. Libraries around the country have become the place where people go into the bathroom and overdose, and um, it's librarians who are not obviously trained in, in this sort of thing. And one helpful drug they have, there's an antidote called Narcan, and it's actually kind of a miracle opioid overdose, a, a reversal drug. And I... I advocate for a lot more funding for Narcan and giving it to people who need it, like firefighters and uh, librarians. Coming up in a moment, we'll continue to hear from Ben Westhoff's journey to find out more about the effects on the users of fentanyl. And he'll tell us about how rogue chemists in Asia have been financially incentivized to continue doing what they do. What I found was that China is actually encouraging this industry through the tax code and other subsidies. And when a Chinese company exports certain chemicals, they get a rebate, a tax rebate. And so not only does this apply to normal run-of-the-mill chemicals, but it also applies to fentanyl and all these fentanyl analogs and these other dangerous new drugs. He'll also talk more about how he approaches his work as a journalist and the process of writing his book, Fentanyl Inc., when Talking With Authors continues from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. One thing that really came across to me as a reader is that you wrote this book to educate. Yeah, well, thank you. And I tried to get it up to the minute. It's such an evolving issue, but also go into the past, go into the history. Um, 
about how fentanyl was created. And unfortunately, a lot of these drugs, including fentanyl, were made originally by scientists. And they were almost all had a legitimate purpose. But what happened was, in the old days, their papers might be stored in a university library or something like that. So no one was really accessing them. But in the internet age, they all went online. And so rogue chemists began to go through this chemical literature and find these formulas and start making them as drugs. And so I wanted to bring it all the way to the future, but I also wanted it to, to be readable and to tell stories and make it personal. And that's what I tried to do. One of the, the great things about this book is you every step of the way you give us context. And it's hard to understand this issue truly without going back into deep history, the opium wars, which a lot of Americans, it was like a line in a history book or on a test. And yet it has, it resonates. Yeah, it's very ironic because the opium wars were at the beginning of the 19th century when England was selling all sorts of opium to China. And so China was getting tired of this. Their citizens were getting addicted. They wanted England to stop. And so there were two wars over this. Now it's kind of the opposite. It's China that is selling these opioids and Western countries are getting addicted to it. So a lot of people think this the history is very ironic. You mentioned too that, that that period is still very vivid in the Chinese public conscience or consciousness, I should say. Yeah, there's um, in China, drug use is highly stigmatized, and a lot of that dates back to the Opium Wars. We know that drug penalties in this country are very stiff and draconian, but in China, it's much worse. You can get the death penalty for possessing only small amounts of drugs, so very different culture. One of the biggest revelations in this, too, is just the, the economic structure that is encouraging the production and illicit distribution of fentanyl from China. There's, there's basically an incentive program in place for it. Yeah, I really couldn't believe that when I learned about that. China's contention is that, yeah, this industry is big and it's out of control, but we're trying our best. And so I think even the U.S. politicians who are chiding China, demanding change, sort of accept that. But what I found was that China is actually encouraging this industry through the tax code and other subsidies. So there's something called a, a rebate export tax. And when a Chinese company exports certain chemicals, they get a rebate, a tax rebate. And so not only does this apply to normal run-of-the-mill chemicals, but it also applies to fentanyl, and all these fentanyl analogs and these other dangerous new drugs. And so China is trying to encourage the exports, trying to build up its chemical industry. But a horrible side effect is that they're also giving money to these rogue companies making all these horrible drugs too. And the other side of that coin is until recently, I think you, you've mentioned in, in some recent testimony that in May, China finally scheduled everything that could possibly be connected to fentanyl. But until then, a lot of these analogs were still legal or they were changed to be something. You know, they were always sort of a step ahead chemically, right? Exactly. It's like a cat and mouse game where when one drug was banned, they would just tweak the chemical formula. They ban it, just tweak it again. And companies 
made a lot of money exploiting that sort of narrow window of opportunity. How did that change the danger level to all of that constant tweaking of the of the, the compound, I guess? that Yeah, it definitely makes it more dangerous. I mean, these are drugs with no human trials, so which basically means that everyone out there buying these new drugs are guinea pigs, more or less. You know, as you as you read this, it was you could feel sort of a sense of despair in a way too, because you've you've got this out of control, massive, massive industry, um, and then you have this insatiable appetite. I mean, we are the world's biggest customer. Um, it, yeah, it is um, really unfortunate that the opioids crisis is was driven by these pharmaceuticals. Americans take four times more opioids than people in England per capita, for example. Canada has a really awful problem too, and there's beginning to be a problem with fentanyl and analogs in places like Australia and Europe. Africa has its whole own opioid crisis having to do with a drug called tramadol, and it's, it's, it's very bleak, but I believe that something called harm reduction is really the only way out. Uh, this was this isn't a book necessarily about addiction, but were there things that you learned through your journey of research, surprises or just things that you learned about addiction and why this appetite just gets bigger and bigger? One interesting that, thing that I learned, and I, I learned a lot from a book called Chasing the Scream by Johan Hari, was that I always thought of opioid addiction and even alcohol and cigarettes as something that it gets to the, its chemical hooks in you and then you're basically screwed. There's no way out. It changes the way your body Yeah, it changes something permanently. And... You always have to have it. But what I learned from this book was that it's really a combination of not just a chemical hook, but there's also things in people's lives, addicted users' lives. And so often people have personal problems. They have, you know, unemployment, you know, just all sorts of uh, domestic issues. And... If people can sort out things in their lives, they're much more likely to be able to beat the chemical addiction, too. And that's why I'm an advocate for something called medication-assisted treatment. And so medication-assisted treatment includes drugs that are like Suboxone. They're, they're medicine. They're low-dose opioids that help people taper off the bad opioids like heroin and fentanyl. But at the same time, it's combined with therapy, with counseling, with helping people put their lives back in order. And this is called the gold standard of, of treatment, and it's having a lot of success. You devote really the, the last part of Fentanyl Inc. to this concept and this working concept of harm reduction. Tell us what harm reduction is. Harm no. reduction is the idea that people are always going to use drugs and we can't really stop them, so we might as well try to make drug use safer. And so I compare it a lot to sex education. So you can, you know, you can teach abstinence all you want, but kids are probably always going to have sex. And sex education, just like harm reduction, is being realistic about it and trying to make it safer. So some examples are fentanyl testing strips. And these are these really inexpensive kits that are kind of actually like a pregnancy test. You mix up whatever drugs you have, you don't know what's in it. It could be heroin mixed with fentanyl, you don't know. You mix it up in a solution, dip the strip in, and then there will be one stripe, say if there is fentanyl, two stripes if there's not. And so 
what studies have shown is if users realize fentanyl is in their drugs, they're less likely to use it and therefore less likely to overdose. The, the unfortunate thing is that fentanyl testing strips are Ill, still illegal in some states, and there hasn't been sort of the funding and the, the movement necessary for it. The irony is that it's easier to get fentanyl mailed to you or to access it on the dark web than it is to get these testing kits. In some cases, that's definitely true. Yeah, and, and also, as we talked about before, Narcan definitely need increased funding for that, medication-assisted uh, treatment. And then when I traveled in Europe, I went to Spain, I went to Barcelona, where they have this really cutting-edge type of program, and these are called supervised injection facilities. And what these are are places where users can legally shoot up heroin, fentanyl, whatever, and there are doctors and nurses supervising them, there are clean needles, and basically it's a safe, a safe facility to do these drugs. Now, it might sound pretty radical, but no one has ever died in one of these facilities, and they're gaining popularity in, in Europe and in Canada. The thing is, the, the law enforcement people in those countries say this is a great way to improve public safety, it reduces health care costs, at the same time, they're illegal in the U.S., and there aren't any here at all. What would need to happen here to start changing the tide? Culturally, we're so different from Europe in that way, right? Uh, yeah. It's almost like all the big issues, drunk, you know, uh, gun control and so many things. Yeah. Um, what would need to happen here to ever make that a part of the solution here? Well, fortunately, I think the tide is starting to turn. Even in the last few years, you know, President Trump signed criminal justice reform, something I would have never predicted from a Republican president. Um, unfortunately, fentanyl is excluded from that. So fentanyl crimes are still punished harshly. But I believe that the tide is starting to turn. The fact is the fentanyl death rate is, keeps going up that eventually I believe that people are going to have to come to their senses. That's my next question. What do you think it would take? How bad, much worse does it have to get? Well, sadly, I do think it's going to get worse before it gets better. I do think, though, there's a sort of a groundswell. There's an underground movement. There's so many people affected by this crisis, by this epidemic, that parents, family, friends, people are starting to, to make their voices heard. You are based in St. Louis. That's right. You're not from here, though. You came here to, to go to college. Is That's that right? right. Yeah, to Wash U. Yeah. And you sort of started your writing career here, right? Uh, how did you become a writer? And is that what you went to school for, or uh, did you find your way? I studied philosophy in college, and I wanted to be a fiction writer. I wanted to write the great American novel, but my novels were not any good. So I, before long, I switched to nonfiction and journalism, and. My, uh, my mentor from, from WashU was a former Post-Dispatch writer named Bob Duffy, and he really helped me along. I got my first job at the Riverfront Times, and that was a great journalism culture there. My editor, Tom Finkel, really developed young writers, and, and he taught me how to find a story. What's a story? And, you know, I still use the stuff that I was taught. Yeah, I wondered how that shaped you, because then you also wrote right for L.A., the LA Weekly, yeah. I was an editor there, and that's how I came upon the rave scene, and um, which led me to this book. I imagine those really shaped, too, your approach in, in just how you uncover a story that 
perspective of an alternative weekly versus maybe? Yeah, the alternative weeklies are and were great. They let young reporters basically follow their own interests and take a lot of risks and, and chances, and it sometimes can pay off. You have taken Fentanyl, Inc. and this research to a new level. You testified before a congressional committee. That's right, yeah. Um, my findings about China and how they were actually encouraging this industry drew the attention of this commission in China. Um, former Missouri Senator Jim Talent was the head of the commission, and I talked to him and the rest of the commission about uh, what's happening in China and my suggestions for what could what we should do. Kind of a different route for you too as a journalist. Your your previous two books, right, were about rap. Yeah, about hip hop music. Yeah, it is it is different. Um, I just sort of apply the same sort of techniques of trying to interview everyone, trying to really get to the bottom of the story and tell it in an interesting way. What's next for you? You mentioned that you've already started your next sort of story and journey. Yeah, I had a little brother in the Big Brother Big Sister program. His name was Jarrell Cleveland, and we were together for 11 years. He's from Ferguson, actually, and he was murdered in 2014. And so my new book is to uncover what happened to him because the murder was never solved, and I'm trying to re, you know, put the pieces back together of his final months to figure out what happened to him. Oh, so it's, this is, story is personal. Yes, it is, is unfortunately. It, is it something that was sort of always haunted you? Yes, it has been. And um, I'm still in touch with his family, but no one has, has gotten any closure yet. As you meet readers tonight and as you continue talking and sort of spreading the word about the scourge of fentanyl, what are you hoping that readers walk away with after, after learning about this? I wrote this book for the families of people who have overdosed and died and to bring truth and awareness. And so this epidemic is so painful and it just doesn't show that there's an end in sight. And I feel that we have to have some light on the issue, some truth, and that's what I hope readers take away from. Ben Westhoff, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you very much. That's award-winning investigative journalist Ben Westhoff as we spoke with him in September of 2019 about his book, Fentanyl, Inc., How Rogue Chemists Are Creating the Deadliest Wave of the Opioid Epidemic by publisher Grove Atlantic. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The host and producer of the video version of this program was Brenda Madden. Photography was by Peter Foggy and Ken Calcaterra. Audio by Ben Smith. Editing and graphics by Carrie Marks. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou and Christina Chastain. And the HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking With Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. And I'm Rod Milam, your podcast producer and host. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up. You get dressed. You prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. 
In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.